Welcome to episode 19 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am Darren Weeks, and on this National Short Person Day, I am, as always, joined by my vertically challenged co-host from the North, Mary Fincher. Good evening, Mary. How are you tonight? On this special day, you're sitting on your phone books right now, sitting yeah, right I up am. on the computer. I'm yep, sure you I am. are. Yep. Oh, we had, some, we had some fun with that today, didn't we? No, it was a lot of fun <laughs> on Twitter during that National Short Person Day. But the other important thing about today, besides it being for people who are vertically challenged, such as myself, <laughs> I shouldn't thoughts say thoughts vertically and, challenged, thoughts as and you prayers. say, fun-sized. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Phil Sheridan was apparently fun-sized. Absolutely fun-sized, absolutely was. But there's another reason we're here tonight, and it's to do with General Sherman. And that is because we are doing our part two of the March to the Sea. There's a very special anniversary today that we are recording on. It certainly is, is I shut off my phone to avoid scorn from the North, since I'm going to take care of that. And it is off. Okay, let the record show my phone is now off. We, there was an incident recently. So today is a special day. And are we going to get to the special day now? We're going to save it till the end of our story. I guess we could save it till the end of our story. I mean, I, I mean, it's about the story. I mean, you know, it is, how, yes. You know, but it how, is to do with Sherman's March to the Sea. Just seems like yesterday. So how's that? Uh, before we get started, we had a good Facebook Live, a really good one on Saturday. We did, yeah. A lot of a lot of people jumped on. A lot of our friends on new friends. We announced our book club, which we are going to talk more about later. Which yep. we might have some book titles we're going to throw in some people tonight. Yep. Overall, it was a lot of fun. I think we had a good, fun Christmas episode as we sit yep. here on this Tuesday night. Santa's loading up his sleigh mm-hmm. full of good toys for nice people like me and coal for naughty people like you. And they're going to be dropping this on Saturday, the day after Christmas. So everybody will know if their stockings are full or if they have some repenting to do for 2021. Ooh. So we, we will all find it. We will all find out. We will. We'll find out together. Or as Saturday is known as Canada, Boxing Day. Boxing which is day. why I have Monday off work because Boxing Day falls on the Saturday. So I have Monday off work. Enjoy your Boxing Day. We have a lot of fun with that. Before we get started, we got to do our own tradition though. Our own Boxing Day sort of, which is announce the libations for the evening. Exactly. So we'll go by height. So I'll go first. So <laughs> I, I am drinking... <laughs> Knockabout Midnight Pumpkin. I'm drinking it because it has a moon on it. And we like moons around here because of Oliver Otis Howard. And obviously, I'm drinking it out of my William T. Sherman I Dream of a Brighter Atlanta coffee mug because it applies to what we're talking about this evening. Nice. Well, I am drinking Hazy Sunset, which is a New England IPA. And I chose New England IPA to start off with because Oliver Otis Howard is involved in this March to the Sea, and he is from New England. Well, if we drink too much of this, we'll be doing our March to the P, so we better get, <laughs> we better get, we better get rolling with this story and, and going with that. Basically, when we last were talking about battles, we were talking about Fredericksburg, we were talking about Franklin and stuff like that. But before we did that, we kind of did a tease. This is a really good idea by you, Mayor which was start the Sherman's March. I know, start with the Sherman's March and then kind of take a break until he comes out around now, which is right around. Let me write that down. The day, Darren, I had a really good idea. Okay, we'll just edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll do the editing this week. I'll tell you, I'll I'll take care of that. My watch is not coming on to ask me what it needs to be. Yeah, that's going to remind me at some point. (laughs) That was pretty funny. But... We're going to talk again, going back to the beginning, Sherman's March. Now, Sherman's March, you know, we, real quick, we'll do the highlights of the overall where we got to our point before. November 15th, 1864, Sherman begins his march from Atlanta. He is going to march through the state of Georgia, heading to Savannah. Now, no one's going to know where he's going, pretty much except him. Even Lincoln isn't sure where the heck he's going to be going at this point. More importantly, the Confederates don't know what the, what the story is. So, John Bell Hood, who has been basically petitioned to help nip at the heels of Sherman, decides he's going to go to Nashville and he's going to take Nathan Bedford Forrest with them as his chief cavalry guy. So right off the bat, he's weakening the Confederacy. So William Hardy is going to basically be left with Joseph Wheeler, uh, his cavalry, along with a brigade of a guy named William Jackson. And he's also going to have the departments in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. A lot of older, elderly. You know what though, Mary? We've been saying elderly men until I looked at it. They were 40. Mm-hmm. That's what they call elderly men. Yep. Just in case you, you and I want to feel a little bit older. Yeah, so, you know, no, we'd that be, definitely. We'd, yeah. we'd be we'd, elderly people fighting the war. Just okay. But most, I, but I would be younger. two years away from being elderly. But the Canadian exchange rate puts you a little older. And my so math skills it. maybe are a little bit. Yeah, that's probably true. But again, they're going to about 13,000 guys going up against 60,000, 65,000 guys. So Sherman is going to basically take two of his armies, Army of the Tennessee, which is going to be on the right wing, 
They're going to be led by Oliver Otis Howard. Oliver Otis Howard. He's going to be there. He's also going to have uh, two armies under his command, two corps rather, the 15th Corps under Peter Osterhaus. We met at uh, Chattanooga. We didn't yep. meet him, but we talked about him. Mm-hmm. And, and the 17th Corps, which is by Frank Blair. Talk about their division guys as the show goes on here with the story. On his left wing, led by Henry Slocum, it'll be the Army of Georgia, which is the 14th Corps by Jefferson C. Davis. No relation. 20th Corps by Alpheus Williams. Again, we'll talk their division, guys. They'll be have uh, Judson Kilpatrick with them, about 5,000 cavalry guys, who's going to protect both wings. So basically what you have is a land shock, right? Yep. Moving across. They're going to meet at Milledgeville, which is the capital of Georgia at the yep. time. They're going to really lay surge to Georgia. Yeah, it's Sherman's not just race. battles. It's psychological warfare, too. And it's basically making it so that the South doesn't want to, to make war on them. And the total distance from Atlanta to Savannah is 300 miles. Or for the Canadians listening to the show, 480 kilometers. Okay, it sounds, sounds longer that way. But basically, when he leave, when Sherman does leave Atlanta, his, you know, 30 to 40% of the city is completely burnt. A lot of it's by Hood himself, but a lot of it's by Sherman. They're taking out all the military supply places. But what Sherman wants, he's been going on this whole attitude for a while now, where he wants to basically scare the hell out of the Confederates. He wants to do a couple of different things. He wants to destroy their supplies, their factories, their ability to make war. And what he wants to do is he wants to scare the shit out of the citizens. Because mm-hmm. what, he, what he really wants is he wants those soldiers who are fighting with Lee in Virginia, who around this time are dealing with Grant, to sit there and go, my family is home in Georgia with this psychotic Sherman burning down farms. I got to go home for my family. So he's trying to weaken them by doing that. You know, it's a real good job of it, actually, as, mm-hmm. it, as this thing goes on. As we go throughout the story, we'll talk about this, this psychological war, a really on Southern morale to really terrorize the minds of these citizens to really create fear among that entire part of the country. And as you said, it does work. So where we left off with you last time was they were at Milledgeville. Not really the halfway point, but this is where the march does begin to change. So the first part of the march, Sherman is very hands-off. He's letting Howard and Slocum kind of do their own thing. They just know that they have to get to Milledgeville. Howard is fainting towards, is it Augusta? He's speaking towards Augusta. Yeah, he's fainting towards Augusta to make the Confederates think he's headed there. And then Slocum is fainting towards, oh, Macon. Macon, That's right. Thank you. They're trying to make the Confederates think that they're, you know, going to head there. They meet up at Milledgeville. They're only there for a day. But this is where the march starts to change a little bit. And Sherman becomes more hands-on with it in giving more detailed orders to his wing commanders, as well as to Kilpatrick as to what he wants the cavalry to do. I'm going to say, just throw some dates at you here. So this, we're talking, this is the 23rd of November, which mm-hmm. is when this is going on. So this is when they're about to leave Milledgeville. So he's been going about nine days. But again, to recap a little bit about this, what's important about this is Sherman's got no supply lines. So he's cut the telegraph to DC. They can't reach him. He can't reach them. Um, really, no one knows where he's going. But this is really what the risk is, okay? He's basically going across enemy country with no supply lines. And he's benefited sort of because he has that census map we talked about where he knows exactly where he's going to go because he's been there before, knows the ins and outs of Georgia, but he's going to have to live off the land. It's going to be 30,000 tons of food a day for these two armies to go across this. They've got no home court advantage. This is going to, they're going to have to go and they're going to have to forage, which is going to be really one of the lasting images of, of Sherman's March of the Sea is what he does to, to feed his army. They are today known as the Bummers, but in many of the accounts of the soldiers that were on the march, they don't call them the Bummers during the march. That name actually doesn't come about until Milledgeville. When Dr. Edward A. Duncan, who is marching with the right wing, he writes, damn the Bummers, they are always bumming around when they are not wanted. And from there, the name started to take off like wildfire. And they started to be more commonly referred to as the bummers. Mm-hmm. But as I said, in, in contemporary accounts, they're not really referred to as that. So this is something, this is kind of like something that has become like a legend of the march to the sea. Mm-hmm. The term bummers was not there from the start. If you look at hats, these Civil War hats, you'll see forage hats. Sometimes you'll see bummer hats. It's really the same kind of thing. But basically mm-hmm. it's these people are the ones who are going out. And they were going by an order called Special Order 120 which we talked about last time, which is basically gave Sherman was giving the rules of how to do this. There were specific rules about certain buildings that could be burned, certain ones that couldn't be burned. You kind of look the other way, a lot of this stuff. 
as he starts marching, and one of the stories that's going to be consistently throughout this march is going to be the slaves, right? As they start marching, they're finally going to start moving. Just to jump ahead a little bit, they're going to finish this up right around the, almost exactly today, which is maybe an anniversary date. We kind of hinted at maybe perhaps, but who knows? We'll, we'll find out. They're going to start marching and from Milledgeville, and they're going to be doing their thing. They're going to be nipped by Joseph Wheeler the entire way. He's going to try to take shots at him. These new freed slaves are going to be there. For a lot of the people in these armies, this is the first time they've really seen slaves. What I mean by slaves, too, is the horror of slaves. They're going to see slaves with whips, scars. They're going to see a lot of that stuff. They're going to see mulatto children for the first time. They're going to see a lot of the dark side of slavery, this American Civil War. And it's going to piss them off, to be honest. You're going to see them really be friends and be friendly with these people, uh, including William Sherman. Now, William Sherman, we're we're going to talk about this in a little while. He's no friend of the Negro race they called back then. He saw them, in his words, as in a transitional state of humanity which is kind of a crappy thing to say, but there's what he's basically in his mind. They're not fully human, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, but then you have Slocum and Howard who are his wing commanders who are abolitionists. You know, Howard was raised with, I think it was the son of an escaped slave. I mean, Howard was ahead of his time in the way he, he thought. They weren't, I mean, he was in, you know, New England. I don't know if he's an abolitionist, but he probably was. I mean, as far yeah, as he's, the he, I, th- goes, I think he would be classified you know? as an abolitionist. Yeah. Slocum definitely was, and I think. But he Howard wasn't. A, he was wasn't. Too. He wasn't a Robert Gould Shaw or a Greeley no. or you know those. Are, but he was certainly on the of that mindset. He yeah. wasn't like these other guys. You know, Sherman, like a non-abolitionist. The thing about him with this was interesting. Was he loved seeing them on the march? He would shake their hands. He would smile at them. He just didn't like him as a whole, but he liked them individually, right? For yeah. whatever reason. I think he treated them on the, for the most part with kindness, but there were times when he said, you're better to stay here at the plantation, yeah. especially if it was a mother with young children, because the thing about right. the march is they needed the food to feed the soldiers that are on the march. And if you're mm-hmm. carrying a lot of these refugees as they came to be known, it's going to start to slow you down. And as we're right, going to talk right. about in a little while, mm. there is something that happens, which is well, right. that. What he wants is he wants young, strong black men to be mm-hmm. pioneers. So yep. he's going to go there and say, listen, you want to come with us? You can, you're going to help build roads. Okay. We're going to give you food for, for your labor. That's how we're going to feed you. But we're but you, just so you know, you're never going to fight. But I'll take you, but only if you are physically able to do it and strong. What he doesn't want, he doesn't want women, doesn't want children, doesn't want anybody, invalids, old. But that's what he's going to get, though. What's going to happen is he's going to have these people following him. They follow him to freedom. They want to get away from what they knew, which was that slave world. So they're walking with the Yankees. These women, these children, they're begging for food off the soldiers, which we're going to show later on as food kind of runs out when it gets later in the calendar year. But it's going to be a real hassle for, you know, for Sherman in the army. But for these soldiers, I mean, they were shocked at the condition of these people. I mean, just absolutely shocked in just overall the position they were in. But Sherman, he's friendly with them. You know, they're trying to get these people to get away, but they're still coming. But you're talking about trying to manage a 60,000-man army, how you're going to do it all. But basically, he's going to end up marching along. He'd be very popular with his soldiers. We've talked mm-hmm. about this, the Uncle Billy thing. Hey, Uncle Billy, how are you, Uncle Billy? And he loves the nickname, and he's waving yep. having a great time with the soldiers. And I think that's the Sherman that a lot of people recognize from that name. We call Uncle Blingy, we talk yep. about. <laughs> Uncle Blingy you know? because of the California gold rush. What's going on with this is that it's really causing an issue as this goes on. We mentioned before the supply lines. We're going from late November into early December, where it's getting cold. The food is running out. And we'll jump ahead real quick, but by the time they finally get outside of Savannah, these guys are eating rice because there's no yeah. other food. Everything is stripped. It's gone. And now you've got thousands and thousands of slaves who are basically begging for food. It's slowing them down. And the other thing that's that they're dealing with, too, we'll get to when we talk later on, is the cavalry is Joseph Wheeler, who's still taking shots at them and just being a, like a fly, a gnat. And there's be some battles we're going to talk about here in a second where he actually represents himself pretty, pretty well. But that's the stage. So you got these basically four corps, these two armies led by Sherman with Slocum and Howard racing to get to Savannah because they want to get to Savannah. They want to meet up with the Navy, get supplied by the Navy mm-hmm. and begin to decide what they're going to do next, which is ultimately going to be going through the Carolinas and chase, chasing yeah. Joseph Johnson. The other reason too, to mention about that the food becomes more scarce. It's not just because of that you're getting later and into winter. It's because that 
this root that they're on, the closer they get to the sea, the sandier the soil, the harder it is to grow certain items that they had been living off of to begin the march with. And what Sherman does with deciding the root of the march is absolutely brilliant. He's taken the census records from 1860, I believe it was, and he's looked at the richest areas of agriculture. And that's exactly where he is cutting this gigantic land shock is, is, right. is through this <laughs> through this area. But as Darren said, they were they were living off rice near the end of it as they approached Savannah. And there were soldiers that wrote in their diaries, oh, we're having rice again. And it would be like they would go to eat the rice and it would be so gritty to eat because of the sand from the soil. It would mm. just be like the sand would get mixed in with it. So it was just they had an, almost like an abundance of food to begin with, but then near the end, they are struggling to find the food. And I think Sherman knew that was going to happen, but it was a risk that he had to take because he knew it would happen so close to Savannah that they mm-hmm. would be okay in the end. And the other thing that Sherman's doing, Mayor, is he's destroying the railroads as he it is. goes. Yeah. Okay. And he's doing this because what he really wants to do is he wants to really disrupt the Confederate supply line. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You can make all the gunpowder and bombs you want. If you can't deliver it anywhere, you're screwed, right? That's the way it is. Kind of like yeah. mailing a package to Canada that takes <laughs> six months to get, by the way. D- different story, Mary. <laughs> You know, they must have destroyed the rail lines between Goderich and Cape Cod. That's another story. <laughs> Calvary arrived today, Mayor. It arrived today. Yep, it arrived. Thank finally, God it arrived. finally did. It arrived today. So, <laughs> um, speaking of speaking of Calvary, so three days out from Milledgeville, November twenty eighth, there's the Battle of Buckhead Creek, which is a, a Calvary engagement. And a lot mm-hmm. of these battles, like we talked in the first episode of the Battle of Griswoldville, which was infantry but the the battles that happen and they're relatively small engagements that happen in this second part of the march of sea like post milledgeville they're primarily the the cavalry battle battles with yeah. kilpatrick and between kilpatrick and wheeler so we'll, we'll, we'll quite tell us about, about joseph wheeler he's a west point guy kind of a prick admittedly he little, is little he he called himself war child mary he would jump on his horse and he would say the war child rides tonight that's what he tells this, this is clearly a dude that wants to be either Nathan Bedford Forrest or right. fucking Diva Stewart. That's, I mean, would, it, would it kill me if you call me War Child once in a while? That's all I'm trying to say. You, know, but, you want me to call you War Child? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Come on, man, the War Child rides tonight. Can you imagine the arrogance jumping in the car and going to the four score? Come on, War Child rides. That's what he called himself. I mean, you may have been like, all right, War Child, we're going. But he was very pro-slavery. Just a, just a tough dude but i think to your point he looked in the mirror and i think you saw nathan bedford forest i think he really did yeah and but he was a hard fighting guy and to your point he's going to nip away at him you mentioned the battle of buckhead creek we'll talk about this is when he's actually going to be more aggressive against kilpatrick he he definitely is and kilpatrick actually nearly gets captured here but what this is is this is kilpatrick is on a bit of a mission so he's on a mission to rip the shit out of the railways but he's also going to liberate camp lawton which is a prison camp, yeah. Union soldiers. But when but, they get there, it's been But before, before, before we get to Fort Lawn, we mentioned Kilpatrick, mentioned being a little mm-hmm. aggressive. He almost gets his ass captured, Mary. Oh, he does. Kill, you know? Yes, he does. I mean, he, he, he almost does. He basically, if it wasn't for the 5th Ohio, the cavalry, got to mm-hmm. credit to Ohio or credit is due, I suppose. But he basically, under a guy named Thomas Heath, not to be confused with Heath, Mary. It's <laughs> this Heath. guy's name was spelled um, H-E-A-T-H. E-A, I know. So, so you know what? It must be Heath. It must be pronounced. It must be pronounced half. The A must be silence. (laughs) You know, so the Fifth Cavalry is going to, Fifth Ohio is going to basically attack Wheeler Canister. He's really going to push him back. It's going to ultimately be a pretty substantial defeat for the Confederates. They lose about 600 guys versus like 50 U.S. guys. So it's pretty minimal for the U.S. This is, again, Kilpatrick consistently swatting that fly of Joseph Wheeler away. And Wheeler will not go away. Then you mentioned the next step, which, which is going to be Lawton. But before that, though, just a couple of days later, going into early December now, Kilpatrick gets a little bit of revenge, though, in a place on the Battle of Waynesboro. So Waynesboro, basically, Kilpatrick is going to pound Wheeler. This time he's going to really get him good. What this is going to do, it really is going to help clear that path for Sherman to begin his approach to Savannah. Right? It, it, it's very significant, I think. It's very significant in terms of the March to the Sea. And it's something that doesn't get discussed a lot. Of When you look at the March to the Sea, it sometimes seems it's like Atlanta, Milledgeville, Savannah, maybe a little bit about McAllister and Kilpatrick's role doesn't really get discussed. And Kilpatrick is one of these guys who, I mean, he's got a reputation and it's not good. He does not shine in the Eastern theater, but as you and I were talking about this morning, nobody ever mentions him on the Gettysburg retreat. 
and that he actually did really well there. Does not do well on July the 3rd, but he does well on the retreat part of it. Yeah, he has that kill cavalry nickname, yeah. which, you know, it, 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 it's, it is somewhat earned. I mean, there was that incident with Elon Farnsworth. It it, 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 but it shit happens, right? But you know what, though? We talked before about a lot of these guys, like guys like Howard and these other mm-hmm. dudes. He has a chance to redeem himself. He does, a, he does a really strong job. I mean, we're going to jump off topic real quick. In Monterey Pass with the Gettysburg yep. Escape. Yep. For the most part, Mayor, on this March to the Sea, he does pretty well. He I mean, does. He, he covers both flanks, covers both armies. He basically is dealing with Joseph Wheeler. Wheeler's got a pretty good-sized cavalry. Mm-hmm. And he basically is finally looking to finally finish him off at Waynesboro because he's got to get rid of him. He has yep. to. So he's going to take – Kilpatrick is finally going to say enough of this. He's going to take his entire division along with two brigades under Absalom Baird from the 14th Corps. Is that XIV? Mary's 14th? Fucker. Oh, sorry. Anyway, um, so, so, so – <laughs> So, so Kilpatrick is going to go find Wheeler. He's going to go, well, let's, go let's go find him. He's basically going to get him. Wheeler's going to be behind barricades. He's going to be in a strong defensive position. But he's finally going to get driven back. This is going to be the Battle of Waynesboro. He's going to get finally, he's going to get ready Wheeler to finally withdraw and basically send the war child off into the night, which is ultimately <laughs> what he's going to do here. The war but child gets spanked. War child, ooh. <laughs> war child gets spanked. Got punished, but this is going to now clear the road now for Sherman because now mm-hmm. there's really no opposition. Yeah, it's kind of like that scene in Star Wars and finally blow up the Death Star. Okay, blow it, kid. No one's around you. Shoots and blows it up. That's yep. what it was. Exactly. He's got no one, no one else to worry about. And then we got to talk about Lawton. Yes, we do have to talk about Lawton. Yeah, so, Lawton was a Union prison camp. They were going to go liberate it, and when they came upon it, it had been abandoned. But they saw the conditions the men were living in. They saw corpses there. And for those Union soldiers that came upon it, it threw them into just anger, which rightly so, right? Like you're seeing these conditions your fellow soldiers are living in. And there's a nearby town called Millen. Yeah. So they get there and they find this situation. It's it's heavily defended. It's a strong place, but they're all gone. The first thing soldiers see is a gigantic dirt pile with a sign, 650 federal bodies. That's the sign they see. And they're like, are you shitting me? Because this is really the first time they've seen this because Andersonville was, was a different part. They haven't seen this yet. Go into a, like a warehouse, is fine. they find three more bodies that are waiting to get buried that have been there a while. So they bury these bodies and these guys are enraged now. So this is Kilpatrick and those guys like, fuck this. Let's find the nearest town. They find Millen, Georgia, and they just burn it to the frigging ground. Yeah. Out of, out of pure, pure rage. And you have to imagine some of those stories you'd see at these World War II camps, Auschwitz and these places, as the U.S. and these other national forces liberated them, the anger, right? And they just start shooting people. But this is what they experienced, right? You find, and they hadn't seen this before, but you have to imagine just how mad they were. And this is Sherman now, that mindset which is basically, if you have the opportunity to d- really destroy something militarily or something like that, take them out. And they didn't have to think twice about it. They took exactly. them right out. Yep. And, but it's incidents like that that unfortunately are why in historical memory, the march is seen like they're basically looking at these men as like, oh, look at these men coming in. They just burned our town. It's like, meanwhile, they're, it's done in a rage, you know, and they're finding 650 bodies buried. The whole purpose of this mission for Kilpatrick, not just to rip the shit out of the railways, but to liberate this camp. I mean, take out any military factories, anything you can that's going to disrupt the, you know, the Confederate war effort. I mean, they're doing all the Sherman's necktie stuff. The army's all the way across. So they're burning the, the, the rails and melting them and all that stuff. But this was personal, though. I mean, mm-hmm. while this is going on, you know, Sherman, his infantry is marching, Okay. And, and this is when you start seeing some of the other things that Confederates were doing to slow them down, which was the torpedoes. They were. And actually, the other thing they had started doing, too, was they had started burning stuff ahead of them. Yeah. And Sherman yep. was like, okay, if, you, if you're going to fuck with me like that, then guess what? He's like, wait, do I smell fire? Yeah. He's like, ooh. He's probably like, you know, ooh, nice. Yep. But, but yeah, the but torpedoes, the, as you said. The torpedoes was a big deal because it hadn't been done before. And this was still at a time when it was almost like gentlemanly war. It was outside of the war. You, you fought like a man. This is why they hated sharpshooters, Mary, the Berdan mm-hmm. sharpshooters. And they still, even to this day, I mean, you know, Vietnam, those wars, if you caught a sharpshooter, you killed him because you didn't, you know, you didn't look a man in the face and you shot at him, right? Mm-hmm. That's what this was. So they're, they're marching along these dirt roads and these things are starting to go off. 
And Sherman is beside himself. So what does he do? He's going to force the Confederate prisoners of war he's caught to either march first or dig these things up, which is what yeah. he does. Yeah. And the Rebs get pissed. There's one story where he says, you know, here's the deal. He tells the Rebs to go ahead and start digging these things up. And he writes a note and gives it to one of them. and goes, go find Hardy, okay? Or go find Wheeler and give him this note. And it basically says, if you ever do this shit again, we're going to start executing your people because this is absolutely unacceptable. And you know what happened? They stopped. Yeah. Well, and Sherman, like what had happened is it was on December the 8th that there was one specific incident where he was like, you know, some men had been riding ahead of him and he came across one of these men that his horse had been killed by the torpedo, but he'd lost the lower half of his leg. And mm-hmm. Sherman witnessing that, like he wrote in his memoirs, he was like, this was not war, but murder. And it made me very angry. And again, it goes back to, you know, the whole, like, if you're going to fight me, fucking face me, don't do this kind of stuff, you know? And Sherman, he takes these Confederate prisoners and he makes them dig up the torpedoes. And of it in his memoirs, he wrote, I could hardly help but laugh at their stepping so gingerly along the road. So even Sherman here is making it a little bit personal. And I think for some of us to read that in the 21st century, and this is not how you do war, but to him, where he was in 1864, this was how he felt you waged war. You had to face each other. The other thing that pissed him off was basically Joseph Wheeler basically put bounties on these bummers, Mary. Mm-hmm. So they saw they weren't they weren't soldiers. These were thieves. That's how he saw them. They came across eleven bummers with their throats slit. Yep. On the side of the road, Sherman at that point is says, "We're gonna we're gonna start executing these people because that's it. This that's it. We're done." And so, of all the negative Sherman stuff you hear about the march of the sea and burning this and burning that the reps are no angels with this i mean they would they had to do in their mind was whatever it could to slow them down because don't forget you had thirteen thousand guys with older people and basically boys and some cavalry and that's on jefferson davis mary that's all he had because he had he had hood going to nashville oh yeah he was bleeding men by that point and like they were deserting and the other thing too is like when you're looking at the march to the sea there is so much lost cause that factors into it of course the accounts written by the people that went through it are going to seem like oh my god they're burning all of my state because that's the kind of slant they're they're going to put on it but when you you have to look at it from both sides. There's bad shit happening on both sides. The bummers, there was a few bummers that did stuff yeah. that are reason right. why there's the reputation. But at the same time, Wheeler slitting the throats, you know, yeah. that's, that's murder, right? Yeah, I mean, but Sherman had that quote. He goes, you know, I didn't start this. He goes, but damn, I'm going to finish this. Mm-hmm. He, he saw this march as a way to end the war. And yeah. he proved out to be relatively prophetic because that's pretty much what exactly what happened. He was going to do what it took. Now, he didn't really wage war on the citizens. He really did. There's no. a lot of misconceptions, but he did take out anything that was basically going to hurt the union, the union cause. There's a story about how they came upon a factory, a bunch of women. They destroyed the factory. They took the women, sent them to Indiana, of all places. I don't know why, but yeah. that's where they sent them to. And so, okay, you know, but that's where they went. So, but again, it's just what happens. But as this goes on, you have, again, you have more and more of this slave issue that's happening out of the Union. Because as you're going further east or southeast, I guess, theoretically, you're going through the deep south. You're talking about specific slave areas. And you're getting more and more of this caravan of slaves that are following them along. Yep. So you're going to basically have this army that's trying to get as fast as they possibly can into the Savannah area. But you're having these slaves follow them, and it's completely slowing the army down. And that's where we come to Ebenezer Creek. That's We get to Ebenezer Creek, which is December 9th, 1864. Now, we're going to talk about this for a few minutes because this is, this is one of those things that no one looks good here. And this is something that comes out of this that people still talk about. And we got to talk about Jefferson C. Davis. Jefferson C. Davis is going to be the guy who's going to kind of get all the blame for all this. I mean, first of all, Jefferson C. Davis, real quick about him. He's a pro-slavery northerner. Oh, absolutely. He's not somebody who is going to endear himself to Lord Garrison's of the world. Okay, Mm -hmm. he's not. Talking Um, about a guy that literally got away with murder, as we discussed last week in our Christmas mm -hmm. episode. And then as you said earlier when we were talking, I think earlier this week, he's like a Barksdale, as you discussed. You know, he's no better than than Barksdale, who fights for the Confederates with how he feels about slaves. I believe he's from Kentucky as well. He just doesn't like blacks. He yeah. doesn't I mean he's fighting for the Union. But again, he is irritated as hell 
these slaves are slowing the army down. He's mad. They're begging for food. And we mentioned before, they're approaching Savannah. So the weather's getting colder. So there's less food that we talk about eating all the rice. And then basically, you know, he's also still dealing with Wheeler's cavalry. Okay. He's still dealing with all them, but he wants to stay ahead of them because he knows he, there's a schedule they have to keep and they, they want to keep moving 15 miles a day, 10 miles a day. Yeah. So they got to stay ahead of Wheeler, but this army is slowing them down. They get to a place called Ebenezer Creek, okay, which is about 20 miles outside of Savannah. It's 156 feet wide and it's 10 feet deep. Now this is December 9th, so it's cold. Okay, Davis sees this as an opportunity to finally ditch these people. You know when you're out with friends and they're annoying you and you say, okay, I, I know how I'm going to ditch this guy. I know how. You probably do it all the time probably. <laughs> but um, this is his opportunity. His own soldiers, you know what his nickname was for his, his soldiers called him because of his attitude was General Reb. That's what his nickname was. Ah, that's okay. just, and, and a few days before that, he'd issued that order because of how much he felt the slaves were slowing him down. But it had, yeah. you are racist, undertone sort of thing. Every additional mouth consumes food, is what he said in this mm-hmm. order. So no refugees will be allowed in the wagons and none but the servants of mounted officers on horses or mules. He specifically singles out women and children in this order. He's clearly, as you said, he's not an abolitionist at all. They're calling him General Reb. But this order is what he issues. And I think it's part of the reason he justifies what we're going to discuss are his actions at yeah, Ebenezer yeah. Creek. A little background on him. We talked about him on your the Christmas Spectacular marriage. Mm-hmm. He, he's a guy who killed his superior Major General William Nelson in 1862 at that Cincinnati hotel. He was never charged. That's how he rolled, apparently. So as the 14th Corps, okay, is approaching is approaching this creek, this, this Jefferson C. Davis. So he's got Baird, he's got uh, William Carlin, and he's got Jim James Morgan. As they approach... He has some of the 14th Corps guys hold them back. Now, what he tells the slaves is, we think there's sharpshooters that are going to shoot at you guys as you cross the pontoons. So stay back, let the army go first to make sure it's safe. That's what he told them, okay? He has a lot of the 14th guys hold them back. He tells them it's for their own, quote, their own safety, right? Because Wheeler may attack, the, may attack the bridge, apparently. Wait for all the troops across, and let's get the wagons across. And then basically, we'll we'll take you guys last. So, but they and they waited patiently. And then no reason to think they were going to get double crossed. Is exactly what happened. Basically, the orders are at that point. Once the wagons are across, and all the soldiers, the soldiers are going to take up the pontoons and not let any of the slaves cross. There's a guy in the 126th Illinois Cavalry by the name of Charles Kerr. Okay, and he has a quote. The order was obeyed to the letter. I sat upon my horse and witnessed a scene like none, like I pray I may never see again in my life. Basically, about 5,000 slaves, mostly women, children, older people are left behind. Wheeler is going to start to catch up to them. He's going to start basically dealing with them. You had these women and these children begging, please take us across, please, please, yep. please. You got those stories where many jumped in, tried to swim across, and they drowned. There's that really the story where Kerr talks about seeing a woman drown holding her infant cross in the river. Yeah. It's really bad. It's absolutely now, horrific. And I like I don't care like if it's eighteen sixty four, like what what he did there is mm-hmm. it's horrible. Well what yeah. he did pissed a lot of people off north south uh, yeah east and west you know yeah. kerr the guy i just mentioned his comments pissed off jefferson c davis tremendously yeah okay? and kerr was actually had to defend his words he went to his superior a guy named james Connolly. yes who would go ahead and write a letter and leak it to the press about what happened and stanton um, got wind of it too stanton got it who just had a birthday mary just had a birthday edward yep. stanton so he did. Birthday with stanton. we're gonna jump forward we're gonna jump on the waveform machine here in a second talk about the show quick but stanton's gonna come to savannah and see what the scoop is halleck gets involved your buddy halleck and he's gonna mm-hmm. he's gonna write to sherman because now the media because now the now the media is killing these guys so halleck writes to sherman he says they say you almost have a criminal dislike to the negro that you drove them from your ranks prevented their following by um, following you by cutting their bridge and caused a massacre of large numbers of wheeler's cavalry that's what halleck writes to sherman so Sherman's a f- okay. Stanton's going to arrive in January, 1865, January 11th. It's going to annoy Sherman. Sherman basically says, look, don't jump to conclusions. And in the memoirs, Mary, of Sherman, he writes, quote, I explained the matter to Sherman, and Sherman was, was entirely set to his entire, into Stanton's entire satisfaction. That's what he says. Okay, sure. Okay. And then in, tr- in true Sherman fashion, he goes ahead 
and he blames Stanton afterwards for kowtowing to the radical Republican, these, these anti-slavery people. He writes again in his memoirs, we all felt sympathy for these poor Negroes, but a sympathy of a different sort from that of Mr. Stanton, who was not of pure humanity, but of only politics. So what he's saying is, hey, I felt bad for these guys. You didn't because you're only trying to satisfy the media up there in Washington, D.C. Yeah, he, then, so he's really doing some pushback you know, with Stanton there. And, and then Stanton, and then Sherman writes his, that letter to his wife. Yeah. And he says, Mr. Stanton was here and is cured of all that Negro nonsense. <laughs> it's just, so, it's, it's so personal between the two of them. And they, they yeah. and the one thing that what James Conley writes about Jeff C. Davis is that he refers to him as an infernal copperhead. So Conley is hating what he's seeing here. And he says, it's entirely too much for my democracy. So that's why he writes Stanton is he's like, what I'm seeing here is very inhumane. And you have to wonder if others on the march felt that same way, considering the two wing commanders are the exact opposite to what General Reb is here. You know, have you been, have you been called infernal, Mary? Um, oh, that infernal, Mary. I don't think I'm yeah, by you. No. Uh, that sounds like a big word. You know, is that one of those four syllable words that you start? Four syllable words like push you down the undulation, <laughs> watch you go on those rolling hills. But yeah, perhaps, perhaps. At the end of the day, the government is going to dismiss this whole Ebenezer Creek fiasco as a military necessity. No one gets, no one gets reprimanded. Nope, Davis no, never has to account for his. Nope, Davis does not. Have, and, Sher and Sherman basically turns a blind eye to it. When you've got to look at it from military necessity, just you know, forget the humanity of it all, right? These people were slowing him down, and he yeah. had to get there. But there comes a point when you've got to realize they're people. Sherman had a chance to do something with Andersonville, really yeah. didn't, right? This is a case. Sherman, in his defense, is tunnel-visioned on his goal, right? And anything that's going to slow his goal down, he's going to basically just simply dismiss. Now, did he obviously know about what was going to happen? He probably didn't know it, what was happening, but I'm sure as hell it didn't, he wasn't heartbroken about it because it, it ultimately is going to lead to him the next day getting on the outskirts of Savannah. And we'll talk about that. After Ebenezer, he's going to finally slow down this, quote, anchor that's been slowing him down. That's going to allow him to proceed. And he's almost there. He's almost there. You can, you can basically smell it. That The Ebenezer Creek thing is one that is going to be one of those moments in American history that it just looks bad on everybody's part. Yeah, it just, it, it's know. one I find when it comes to the march. It's not, sometimes it's kind of glossed over because people don't want to deal with the controversy of it. But it is also referred to as the Ebenezer Creek Massacre, which I I think in many ways it, it, it is because of, if you know this order that Jefferson C. Davis has put out before, where he's basically saying, I don't want these people with me. They're slowing me down. And then just what he does with the 14th Corps with having them go, oh, don't worry, we'll get you across, but we got to let the soldiers cross first because we think there might be sharpshooters. It was clearly set up to rid himself of what he saw as a dead weight. Well, and it was eating all the food, like the monster feed thing you said, right? Yeah. And at this point, food is becoming is becoming rare, and he has no supply line. He knows if he can get to Savannah, he's going to open this. He's going to open up the navy. He's going to get all the supplies, and he's got it. He knows he's got it if that happens. Military necessity, I guess. I mean, it is what it is. It probably did ultimately save lives, but it's one of those things that just stinks. It just smells bad. It just smells. Bad. Yeah. But it, it, the Confederates capturing these people and Wheeler and taking them back to slavery. They took them back to people. slavery. So also you know? who, who knows how many lives were lost because of that. Yeah. And the ones, but there were some that made it across, like they managed yeah. to make it across. They didn't all drown. But the point is, is like, you know, most of them didn't. And it's just part of the march that this is definitely a dark part of the march to the sea. 156 feet is a long way in December to swim there. I don't know about you. Yeah. The little legs of yours you swim that far. <laughs> that's a tough one but again it's you get the rebs looking bad for these poor people thought they'd escape bondage now they're back again people willing to rather die than be slaves again yep. this is really that, that uh, to your point a very ugly part of american history yeah but you move on from it and that's what the military did and it's just one of those things you don't hear a lot about when you hear about sherman you hear about his aggressiveness you hear about the mm -hmm. fire all that stuff the old saying the buck stops here is true then you got to play sure you got to play sherman for it you have to it, absolutely because he doesn't say anything about it and just how he kind of turns it back around on Stanton and he had to know about those orders that Davis issued you know and the thing is is like Davis was under the left wing so he's under Slocum who's an abolitionist I wonder if he somehow managed to get 
slide them by Slocum because I can't see Slocum being like, uh, this is not cool, you know? I mean, Slocum's mm-hmm. one of those guys, he just, he's one of those, doesn't bring upon emotion one way or the other. He's one no, of he doesn't. Things, no, you know? he's very quiet in history, honestly, you know, especially with the March to the Sea. But yeah, it's definitely something that um, I'm glad we decided to talk about it tonight, have a good discussion about it. And I'm sure we'll bring it up on the live as well. Oh yeah, it's such a happy topic. We'll definitely talk about this <laughs> Not, nothing, nothing, but bring, people bringing Jeez. bring people down on a Saturday morning. Oh that, my yeah, God. That, uh, <laughs> the, anyway, the, the harvester of sorrow, Fincher. Anyway, fucker. Anywho, all right. So December tenth. Okay, they're on the outskirts. So now we're talking about your boy, O.O. Howard. Yeah, Fort okay? McAllister. Fort McAllister. He's going to take Hayes' division of the fifteenth corps, which I think XV is fifteen. Just saying. Yes. Okay? Yes, it is. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about Fort McAllister, Mayor? Yeah. Well, Howard issues special orders number 193 on December 12th, 1864, which are as follows. As soon as King's Bridge is completed, Major General Osterhouse commanding the 15th Corps will direct his second division, General Hazen commanding, to proceed against Fort McAllister to take it. Signed, O.O. O. Howard. So he, yep, he is the one that issues these <laughs> orders. <laughs> So and it's funny, and I, I know why you're mentioning that because Sherman's going to take credit for this he does. this victory and you're setting up the whole oh Howard victory and you're right okay you are but I see what you're doing I can't yeah. fool me here okay I know what you're, you're <laughs> well okay. it's funny Howard just kind of mentions it he mentions it casually in his memoirs he's like Sherman does take uh, credit for this but I just want to say that it was me so while while General Sherman was worried about this whole fiasco with Ebenezer I, and I quote. I was putting on my suit man suit outside of Fort McAllister, <laughs> getting ready to defeat single-handedly the, the battle. Literally single-handedly. Literally single-handedly. You picked right up on that, huh? Yeah. Fort McAllister is a very heavy defended fort. It's got uh, dirt around it to, to absorb artillery. It doesn't take long, though. It takes less than 15, 20 minutes to, to basically take it. And you got that story with O.L. Howard standing up there on the, the hill there watching with Sherman. Sherman's excited because he knows this is the last domino fall. And they're talking about it like they're watching the Patriot game. Exactly. Yeah. And like O.O. is kind of like, uh-huh. Yep. Sherman is more like, he's very enthusiastic. Sherman's very extroverted. And he's like, there they go grandly. Not a waver. See the flag in the advance, Howard, how steadily it moves. Not a man falters. So he's all excited about it, right? But meanwhile, these men are in this one part of the ditch. They do encounter torpedoes again. And there's really horrific accounts of like, you know, men that survived that part, but just the man behind them would get taken out by a torpedo and just there would be like nothing left of him or he would lose part of his leg or whatever. So there is some difficulty in taking this fort. But as you said, it does not take long to take McAllister. No, they, they lost about 130 guys in McAllister. Most of them were by those landmines or torpedoes. Hardy did what he could to slow them down to by flooding the roads. As you know, the road being flooded can definitely cause issues. But it was most of the torpedoes that did that. But to your point, they took care of that. And once they took Fort McAllister down, they were able to open the back door to Savannah. Which, as I say that out loud, sounds horrible, actually. It, it does, loud. actually. <laughs> but, but, but that's what they did. So, so, so that's where we're going today, yeah, the back door of Savannah. Poor Savannah. So Sherman is watching this unfold with Howard. He tells Slocum, I think it's probably via the, the wigwag. You know, the flags. Darren's losing his mind right now. Oh, God. It's the unintentional stuff. It's so funny. I but, know. Um, but, but Anyway, he tells Slocum, I think it's via wigwag, kind of signal system they use with the flags. He says, I've got Savannah. Take a good big drink, a long breath, and then yell like the <laughs> devil. Poor Savannah. Yeah, poor Savannah. <laughs> anyway, wow. Okay. <laughs> So anyhow, so now um, with, with, yes, with, with as Fort I McC- said, he's told Slocum about it. <laughs> with McAllister being being done, that that's really the last piece of the puzzle for, for Sherman. Now he's got a clear path. At this point, you're going to start to see within a week, December 20th is going to come. You're going to see Hardy. He can either surrender or he can try to escape. He chooses to try to escape, which is what yeah. I would do too. So he crosses the Savannah River on these pontoon bridges. They leave it by a guy named Richard Arnold, who is the mayor of Savannah. He's going to have to surrender the city. He basically makes a deal with Sherman, says, look, we'll surrender the city. 
no mm-hmm. problem. You do whatever the hell you want. Just please don't burn it and please don't hurt our citizens. Yeah. And Sherman must have run out of matches because he's like, all right, fine, whatever. We're done. We're good. Sherman had written Stanton on December the 13th and said he considers Savannah already gained. So he knew that once he had McAllister, it was only a matter of time until he had Savannah. And luckily, I think it's on December the 20th, as you said, Hardy vacates the dance floor. He does. And, and so basically, he's basically out. So Sherman's eventually going to slowly ease his way in. And he's going to be a couple of days later on December 22nd. You're embarrassing the children, Mary. Um, <laughs> D- December 22nd, he's going to write his famous telegraph. He's going to tell Abraham Lincoln where he is and what he's done. Yep. And I know you love this quote. I do. I beg to present you as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah, with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition, also about 25,000 bales of cotton, which is probably the greatest Christmas gift ever received, but it is written in Sherman's very theatrical way. Lincoln will respond on December the 26th, which Mm -hmm. is when this episode will drop. Somehow the stars align perfectly. Maybe it's to do with Saturn and Venus right now aligning uh, perfectly that we were able to record this on the well, anniversary I thought it was, of Saturn. I thought it was Saturn and Jupiter. Oh fuck it is. Uh, well does that that right out. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> but you know what though? they don't talk about Lincoln's response back. No, but they I t- have it here to read. I, okay. Well, you can read the whole paragraph? Okay. Yeah. Back is back. that okay? You do what you want. I'm just gonna sit here and think of old poor Savannah Savannah. <laughs> poor Savannah. Yeah that won't become an inside joke. No not at all. <laughs> poor Savannah. My aunt and uncle have a dog named Savannah, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so apologies to the Savannah dog family. <laughs> so Lincoln says, many, many thanks for your Christmas gift, the capture of Savannah. When you were leaving Atlanta for the Atlantic coast, I was anxious, if not fearful. But feeling that you were the better judge of remembering nothing at risk, nothing gained. I did not interfere. Now the undertaking being a success, the honor is all yours. For I believe none of us went further than to acquiesce. So this is a very similar letter that, as I'm sure we're going to talk about in 2021 when we talk about Vicksburg, that Lincoln sends to Grant. This is an important paragraph, and it's one of the most important ones you'll read because it is a complete 180 from Lincoln's McClellan days. Okay, oh, so he, fi- he finishes that quote. And he says, but what is next? I suppose it'll be safer if I leave General Grant and yourself to decide. Please make my grateful acknowledgments to your whole army officers and men. So you know what he's saying here? You know what? You do it. I'm done. I'm not going to interfere anymore. This is what he did with McClellan, with Meade, with you name Hooker, all of them. And so now he sees what Sherman did and he says, okay, if I stay out of this, this is what they can do. So you know what? I'm staying out. And he finally, finally learns not to meddle, which is a yep. big, big thing. This paragraph, the, the many, many thanks in your Christmas gift paragraph quote from Lincoln is astounding for someone like McClellan to read. He must have sat there and oh, said, yeah. are you shitting me? Really? But you know what, though? Good for Lincoln, though, because he finally yeah. realized, let the generals be generals. He realized that this was an issue that was going on the entire war. But he finally realized, if I find the right people, put them in the right place, and let them do their thing and yeah. don't meddle. Ebenezer Creek, notwithstanding, because you have to deal with that politically, he was able to sit there militarily and realize, okay, they can do it. I'm going to stay out. And he did it for the rest of the war. Yeah. Well, you got to wonder, though, if he, he's remembering back to Reynolds, who by this point has been gone for over a year. If he's remembering when Reynolds said, are you going to meddle? And Lincoln's like, well, you know, and Reynolds like, fuck that to commanding, you know. I think he realized he finally found people he can trust. You know, he had Grant mm-hmm. in the east at this point doing, doing Overland. He's in Petersburg and he's doing his thing. He's being aggressive. Yeah, they're taking big, mm-hmm. brutally losses at places like Cold Harbor, losing a lot of guys. But he's keeping Lee on his heels and he's pushing, pushing, yep. pushing. Now he's got Sherman in the west was basically cutting the soul out of the Confederacy, taking their soul, their will to fight, the whole thing. And he realizes, okay, now this is something. And it puts a guy like Jefferson Davis, the, you know, Jefferson Davis, in a really, really bad situation yeah. now because he knows he's – look, we've said before, after Vicksburg, this war was basically over. After Atlanta, it was certainly over. Yeah. But they had to know now that this was done. The vice is really tightening, and they, they're done. Well, I think the fact that Hardy just leaves, and that's what he tells Beauregard, is he just – He's like, dude, I got to evacuate the dance floor. We can't do this. We're going to, we got to do it without a fight. I think Hardy is realizing we can't have any more men killed. And if we just let Sherman have this city, it's going to end sooner. 
And I think it did. You know, if they had put up a fight, more men would have died. Who knows what would have happened? And it's probably a good thing that Hardy did leave. That probably did, that was probably a good decision on his part. It helped to hasten the, the end of the war. If Hardy didn't leave, he would have had to really defend the city of Savannah or yeah. the outskirts. He would have got Savannah blown up. He would have lost almost all of his guys. He knew he had no chance. You still had 60,000, probably, probably about mid-50s, because they did lose guys along the way to uh, uh, Sherman's guys, but you still had probably 50,000 plus fighting ready guys. Yeah. They didn't have much left. Hardy is no, you know, he's, he's not stupid. No. At, at, at this point, some of these guys who are point, we talked about one of our previous podcasts, some of these guys knew this was over. They knew it was, they like, it was done. I, I think and Hardy how, knew it was fr- with Franklin because well, with Franklin, he got word that Patrick Claiborne was one of his best friends. He's found out one of his best friends is gone and he's probably seeing the casualty list, you know, not only, is Claiborne gone, but all those other officers that were killed at Franklin. And he's like, how many more? Yeah. No. And I think he was just, let's try and start to end this. Well, that's it. To win a war, it's a mathematical equation. Okay. It's when will times might, when multiplication formula equals zero, you lose. So you take, you make one of those others zero. The Confederates still had weaponry, but with, by Sherman's march, he was taking their will away. It's what mm-hmm. Lee wanted to do in the North when he went into Pennsylvania, when he, when he went into Maryland. Yeah, exactly. So now, what he did was basically take away the will to fight in the South. And basically, at the end of the day, what you have is you've got soldiers who don't want to fight anymore. You've got you know, diminishing returns on weaponry. That was basically it. The Sherman's March of the Sea was basically the nail in the coffin of the Confederacy. They were dead anyway. The, the, it was, yeah. the body was gone. But, but this was the final nail in the coffin. And how history looks back on Sherman now... It depends on where you're from, right? Oh, absolutely. You know? yeah, if you're from Georgia, if you're from the South, the March of the Sea, you would swear all of Georgia was burning. You know, some of the accounts of it and just the way it's seen today is it's still very much a lost cause thing. Well, it's funny with some of the, you know, even today, some of the biggest defenders of the South are Northerners, right? Mm-hmm, they are. And one of the most vicious quotes I found about, I was looking up a quote to describe the March of the Sea. And the most vicious one I found came from a northern guy by the name of White Claw Reed is his name. Oh, okay? I've heard of him. So he was an editor of the New York Tribune with Horace Greeley, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He wrote, it was the most monstrous barbarity of the barbarous march, he called it. So he was basically saying, even though this march to the sea ultimately expedited the end of the war and by definition saved a lot of lives, mm-hmm. it was barbarous how they did it. Yep. Because you know what? It was a different – this was when you saw warfare changing, when you saw the Napoleonic style of warfare going away. This is when you talked about taking the souls out of civilians and burning public places and built in, in trenching and doing a lot of the shit you saw later on in future wars – this is the direction it was going. So it was that transition of, of just human warfare. But again, people in the North were mortified. And I still think people like McClellan, those types, not him personally, they still wanted to win, but they wanted to let the South down yep. slowly, right? And what Sherman did was take his total war, which is what his, his whole concept was. He learned that from Jomini at West Point and yep. he kept with it. But to basically take that and beg the Confederacy at that point to quit. And that's ultimately what happened. Some asshole, Mary, was in Atlanta a couple of years ago wearing a Sherman t-shirt, <laughs> okay? And was at the bars running his mouth about Sherman. We'll leave that person alone. Hey, okay? been there, done that at a winery. Yeah, okay. But um, it's funny when you talk with, with the people down there because most of them don't care. Most of them hate Tom Brady more than they hate, you know, the company to Sherman. But they all agree and they all tell stories of everything, how their farms were destroyed, their family was this and that. Most of the time, it's you'll meet somebody and they'll be like, Sherman burned my great, great, great grandfather's barn and farm. And you find out they were a hundred miles even removed from where the bummers were. So there's no way that could happen. I was at the General Grant birthplace in Ohio a few years ago. I went in for the tour on the tour with me were an elderly couple and their granddaughter from Georgia. And they saw my Sherman phone case, which I had at the time. She, especially the woman was not, she didn't want anything to do with me. Of course, the tour guide was like, Oh, I love Sherman. Cause he saved Grant. Like they held each other up. And like, of course the couple from Georgia is like the fuck. Finally, the guy said from Georgia, he's like, he burned my ancestors entire farm. And I'm like, Oh, really? 
And I'm like, I don't want to do this today. Oh, I would have, I would have taken that bait all day. You yeah. Me? I no, have and I was like, and where was it? You know, and he's like, well, it was on the March. I'm like, okay. So you can't tell me an exact location. And- it was a bacon. Oh, he was? You mean where oh, he really? was? But I know we're not going to go all the way follow up to the Carolinas, but, but Sherman, yeah. what he would do is he would continue his March. Ultimately, he would go through South Carolina. He yeah. would burn South Carolina. He would faint towards Charleston. Everyone thought he was going to Charleston. There's rumors why he didn't go to Charleston, Mary. There's stories that he might have had a girlfriend there. There's also a rumor that the, the, the mayor of Charleston was a Freemason, and he begged him not to burn yeah. the city. And there's, there's old, so who knows? So he ultimately goes to Columbia, torches Columbia, which is where the University of South Carolina is now. And if you go there, and I've been there, Mayor, I was there on Chicken and Ribs Day. Exactly how it sounds. And <laughs> some of the buildings, like the city hall, I mean, the state capitol, you'll still see cannonball holes. And it's, it's this stuff. He's going to punish South Carolina. He's going to become basically an, a, a demon in South Carolina. But then he's going to get to North Carolina. And he's going to give a break a little bit. He's reminded how North Carolina really didn't want to secede. They barely became secessionary agents. So he kind of let them off a little bit. Obviously, he's going to meet up eventually to put the vice on Lee which is going to ultimately lead to Maddox. He's going to go ahead, eventually catch Joseph Johnson on the same day that John Wilkes Booth was killed, ironically. Yeah. On the same exact day. But again, what Sherman did was he really expedited the war, the war to be ended. He, yeah, he really he, did. He did. And once he does get to Savannah, though, like he's not going to lay waste to it. The citizens have rations brought in for them. You I know, think he, poor Savannah's been through enough, Mary. Yeah, poor Savannah's been through <laughs> enough with Sherman knocking on the back door. And he stays at a very wealthy gentleman's house while he's there. As we said, Stanton comes to see him over the whole issue with Ebenezer Creek and how the former slaves are being treated. Going to stay there for the month of January. But the one thing that Sherman says of the march from Atlanta to Savannah is that he only regards it as a shift of base. So he's Mm -hmm. just transferring a strong army, which had no opponent and had finished its work. So he's seeing it as just like, we were just out foraging and, and shifting base. That's how he's seeing it. He regards the Columbia, like, you know, the, or it's not the Columbia, the Carolinas campaign as being the far more important part of the end of the war. And that's what he says in his memoirs, basically says that the historical memory, and he's writing this, you know, in his own time, the historical memory is what has made the march what it is that the march was made out to be more than what he thought it would be, which was just a shift of oper- shift of base, basically. He yeah. saw the, the second part of it, this march, which we're going to cover in an episode in 2021, the Carolinas campaign, as being the far more important and decisive maneuver. Well, his again, the, the whole point of it, I mean, people talk about he's going to go burn everything, but really it was to connect to Savannah so he can resupply with the Navy. That, exactly. That's really, yep. that, that's exactly. the whole point of what yep. it was. And so, yeah, so shipping base, that's a good way to put it. And we'll talk about that. But what it basically did is it really, it destroyed all the rails going through Georgia. It really ended the supply lines. So so the Confederacy really had no way to transport anything, whether it be food, whether it be weapons, whether it be anything. So they were really put in a situation where the writing was on the wall. It had been for a while at that point. Anybody who wanted to continue to perpetuate this war, it was just unnecessary death at this point. We saw with Franklin a couple of weeks ago yep. what's going to happen with this. But as he gets into Carolina and as, as Grant continues his Overland campaign going through, you know, Spotsylvania, the Yellow Tavern, and just Petersburg, it's going to both ultimately put the screws to Lee now. Johnson's army was there too, but it was really Lee. That was the one they really wanted. Lee's going to have to leave and head towards Appomattox because he's, he needs to connect with them for supplies because he can't feed his army anymore. Yep. And so you saw the supplies, the cutting the supply lines directly impacts the end of that army. Because once you can't supply, once you can't feed, once you can't arm, what do you got? You got nothing. Nothing. And in Sherman, in his after-action report of this march of the march to sea, so from Atlanta to Savannah, he is going to say that in 1864 dollars, he caused a hundred million dollars in damage. In our dollars today, in 2020, this is 1.6 billion that he causes. Which we call that Fincher money. Yes. <laughs> So much it costs to mail something to Canada. It does, way. yeah. Like, mm, yes, try mailing from the from Canada to the United States, <laughs> and then having delays. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. Yeah. Cracker line was open in the mill, though. Yeah, you know, today it finally opened. Finally arrived. <laughs> the, the eagle ended today. But anyway, so I think that's that's an important lesson we talk about. I, I think doing the March of the Sea in two parts really tells a story because it mm-hmm. really talks about if he can do it. 
to I think I can do it to yes, we can do it and the ramifications afterwards. Yep. So I think at the, at the end of the day, uh, is Sherman a hero in the North? Yes. Is he a villain in the South? Yes. Absolutely. And that's never, that's never going to change. I know we're going to talk about books here in a second, but Confederates in the Attic talks a little bit about the, the Sherman myth in the South to this day. Mm-hmm. Someday we'll do that on our book club but mary we have other books we got to talk about before we could talk about confederate we we do and one of them does have to do obviously we'll get to in a second with with the march in memory but the other thing i wanted to say about the march to see is this is definitely something that we can come back and revisit you know in future episodes there are other aspects that could definitely be discussed but as a segue into our book club i think we will be discussing them sooner rather than later maybe i think so you want to do a little bit of a little book club real quick? Yeah, we are going to have a book club in 2021. We are going to read four books throughout the year. The end of each quarter, we're going to have a Zoom meeting just to get together and discuss the books and talk about how we thought about them. And if you would like to sign up for the book club, you can email us at civilwarbreakfastclub at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. New email forthcoming, by the way. Yes, exactly. We'll talk about that New down e- the road. Yep, we will down the road so so let's talk about the book so we know that we're starting off and we already announced this with black iron mercy has basically a historical novel by eric schleinlein i believe his last name is pronounced yes. um so i think a lot of people sign up for that and i see a lot of people said they've gotten the book it's a book about the iron brigade it's a fictional slash non-fictional character named arliss who is going to be a wisconsin soldier who's going to take him through antietam through gettysburg it's a really good read so we're going to be doing that We'll be doing a Zoom meeting to Mary's Point at the end of March. So a lot of people signed up for that, Mary. A lot of people, a big crowd for that one. Yep, we're going nope. to um, we're gonna have to have a bouncer at the door with this yep. crowd coming in. So. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So we'll be doing that. And what about our second book? Our second book is going to be Through the Heart of Dixie, Sherman's March in American Memory by Dr. Ann Sarah Rubin. And it That's is, a good book. As it says about historical memory and you know what it has to do with Sherman's March and that's one of the reasons why we we were thinking originally of having this as a three-part about Sherman's March but then when we decided to do the book for our book club we're like yeah we don't have to do that because we'll be discussing it when we read that book do you know someone just bought me that book Mary I just got that oh really that's interesting yeah, yeah. yeah someone right? just got that in the mail that's interesting that yeah I don't know. so we'll, we'll read we'll, we'll Savannah read get one. it for you <laughs> Uh, Savannah's had a tough has had a tough time. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. So we'll see. We'll see if Savannah's mentioned in that book. I don't know. I bet she will be. A third book is going to be by our friend Dr. Kate Larson, which is going to be about John Wilkes Booth and Mary, more importantly, Mary Surratt, the great Mary Surratt, called yep. Assassin's Accomplice. It is one of our favorite books, Mary, we've talked mm-hmm. about, which talks about Mary Surratt and the Lincoln assassination. So we'll be doing uh, Dr. Kate's book, who's a fantastic, fantastic person, a great writer. And like I said, one of our favorite books. I think that's people are going to really, really enjoy that one. We're going to basically be tweeting all these books. What, Saturday there? Yep. We'll, we'll, be doing we'll tweet them. So, yeah. Well, everything's going to drop Saturday because that's when we're going to drop all, right, all so, this information. Okay. 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 And so we'll get that. What about that fourth book? The, the, Laugh at me for some reason. <laughs> the, the fourth book is going to be Lee's Retreat by Kent Masterson Brown. Another great book. Another great book, which I enabled you on, actually. You yeah, I which did. I have not read yet. I have not read it all the way through yet. So, okay. Well, there's a lot of full syllable words, Mary, for a lot of four syllables. Ooh. A lot of undulations going through those. Uh, rolling Hills. Rolling Hills. Rolling Hills. Monterey, three syllable word. But speaking mm-hmm. of Judson Kilpatrick, it talks a lot about him. We talked about him tonight. And anybody who reads that book or who has already or who will, will get a little bit more appreciation for him and what he did too. Black Iron Mercy, we're going to be doing right off the bat. Book by Dr. Rubin. Which yep, Through the Heart of Dixie. Through the Heart of Dixie. We're going to do Assassin's Accomplice, and then we're going to do the, the book retreat. on Le- Lee's Retreat. But that's the four we're going to pick for now. I think those are perfect books to do this way. I think people are going to love those books, yep. and I think we'll have a lot of fun with that. Definitely will. So, so what's coming down the pike, Mayor? So, Santa Claus coming down the chimney for <laughs> next couple nights um so we will be doing our facebook live at 10 o'clock on saturday december the 26th which you know you might be listening to this before or after if you listen to it after and joined us thank you so in january we are going to be having a guest at the end of the month um but prior or like before that we are going to be talking next week we're going to be talking murphy's borough or stones river yeah let's do stones river Let's do that one instead. Let's do Murfreesboro. Are we going to talk about our guests? We're just not going to leave that alone. 
let's leave that one. It was a little All bit right. of a surprise. Just so you know, it's not Shelby Foot. He, he couldn't make it. <laughs> All right, so we'll leave that alone. But so we have our Facebook Live on Saturday, which, we, like you just said, we're going to have a lot of fun with that. And I think people will be in a festive mood. Hopefully, the people who didn't get coal, which is one of us anyway, will be doing that. And I think, it, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So definitely jump on with that. Stones River next week at Murfreesboro will be fun. It's nice to get back into battles again. It's always fun doing the Christmas one, admittedly, it was. Yeah, it was, but, but I love the battles. But it definitely is. So yep. we'll prepare for our next round table down the pike again, third Wednesday in yep. January. Yep. So I think that's uh, I think that's enough for now, Mary. I think we I think we did yep. enough damage for one day. I think we did enough damage. I think we did made Georgia and Savannah howl. Yeah, apparently. You know, I think so. So <laughs> we will, so I think I think the, the epitaph of this one again is you know Sherman say what you will about him, but his actions did expedite the end of the war. It, it just they just yep. did. It just they did. did. So. And too, when you're looking at the march to the sea, you know, don't just look at it as something that is like Atlanta, Milledgeville, Savannah. Take a look at those little battles that happen as well, like Griswoldville, the cavalry engagements with, with Kilpatrick, especially Ebenezer Creek, and do a deep dive on that because it is really worth looking at. But also look at Fort McAllister as short of a battle as it is it's still very interesting to study each of these are stepping stones to sherman getting to atlanta you know it wasn't as simple as marching and foraging as well and also look at um so a great book about this which which darren is currently reading and i'm actually almost finished it southern storm by um, noah andre trudeau excellent source on the march to the sea he covers a lot of the soldiers diaries very balanced view of sherman and the whole march so highly recommend that book as well about it yeah definitely so great book i would agree i'm currently reading that as well you've been reading this it's going to take longer than sherman to get across the marsh you read this book this is may for you with this book actually yeah because i have like five <laughs> other fucking books on the go so <laughs> okay fine i'll be that way anyway again thanks everybody who's who listened to this again it's a great time already episode 19 wow we're looking at 20 pretty soon there yep yeah and hope everybody had a great christmas hope, hope santa claus treated you well as saint well. nicholas Etc. Etc. And I guess we have to say Happy New Year because after this, our next episode that drops, episode twenty, will be on January the second. Oh, I'm gonna miss 2020, Mary. Yeah, me too. Actually, a lot of good happening. they're definitely they're definitely positive. Definitely positives to 2020. Yeah, might have been, might have been. Yeah, but yeah. So anyway, so um, so I think this has been a great episode. So again, great time, Mary. As always, got great to uh to see you on this. So we will um catch up with everybody soon so again live on saturday hopefully when this drops we will be seeing you at 10 o'clock in the morning if whether you're listening to this late friday night or early saturday morning whenever the, the, the dairy queen of kin cardine decides to post this which is going to be late friday night which will be christmas day so yeah. merry christmas everybody happy happy holiday season hope yep. you have a safe and wonderful holiday and we will look forward to seeing you as we say on the other side as we put a bow on sherman's marshall let's see see y'all later Hey. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>